This is Under Futures, a podcast by Changist, created to discuss underexplored futures. Keep listening at the end of this episode for a special offer. This is episode three, Humans in the Room, about work, place, and time. Welcome back to Under Futures, and this is episode number three with my usual co-host, Madeline Ashby, science fiction writer and futurist. Say hello, Madeline. Hello, Madeline. Never gets old. And our guest for this episode, uh, John Wilshire, strategic designer, famous Scotsman, and founder of London-based Smithery, and also creator of Artifact Cards. John, hello. Hello. Would you like to explain what either of those things are? Yeah, oh, vaguely. Um, Smithery is a strategic design unit. We help organizations make things people want rather than make people want things. Um, as part of that, we did a weird experiment once where we got people to use blank playing cards for ideas. And then they liked them, then we made some more. And then people said, they're a thing, can we have some? And then we then suddenly we have a, an accidental stationary business called Artifact Cards. And you've just released some new ones, correct? Correct. Some lovely new boxes, um, which, uh, yeah, we can talk about that or we can talk about the future of work. <laughs> I think we should talk about the future of work, but the two kind of go hand in hand. So um, we will, we'll talk about the, the lovely new card colors later. Um, but the the reason we're calling this humans in the room um, originally was because there was a there was a a mythical previous take of this episode um, mm -hmm. where all three of us were humans in the actual same room uh, and uh, the reason we were talking about that particular issue is because to to, to sort of unpack a bit um, not so much the future of work which I think the future of work is people doing projects about the future of work. Um, but the future of working and what the nature of that looks like around people, space, time, labor, activities, etc. Um, and the reason that's interesting to us is um, this kind of broader sense that the the you could call it the Silicon Valley mode, mode of working, the you know the open plan, um, very horizontal, um, uh, more kind of flexible, friendly, knowledge-based, um, you know, Google offices with beanbags type um, uh, kind of working structure seems to be, well, it's over a decade old, maybe even longer than that. And um, office open office plans go back even further, but it, that cultural shift around that way of working seems to be coming past its kind of peak and coming down the other side of that arc. Um, open offices again. You know, we've I've worked in them my entire career, one way or the other. We've all experienced different forms of digital nomadry and bursts of employment and task-based work. And I guess my question is, what's changing and where might it go? Um, so, given that we are people who work in flexible offices, we are people who work in home offices in some cases, um, and working out of offices of necessity, like. Hotel rooms, trains, planes, cafes, floors, Whole Foods, libraries, probably the odd washroom here and there. You know, um, we're we're kind of ourselves sitting in the center of this very fluid work environment. So, um, I'm curious to get both of your thoughts about what's happening, what's changing, and where this might go. So, 
I was sitting um, thinking about that after after the myth the mythic first take, which nobody shall ever hear again. Um, the I was sitting on a train just looking around, observing how many people were fighting over the the few remaining tables on. Oh, I, I could fall down a southern rail a rabbit hole here, but I shan't. I'll, I'll <laughs> But it's essentially sort of everyone in the age of the laptop. Everyone's looking for a prosthetic lap. Um, everyone's fighting over whatever remaining table space you can find in these public spaces. Going, I must do the thing. I must open the laptop and get this on. And then you do that little jousting thing. If you're sitting opposite someone who's on a train, you go, "Well, I've got this 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 laptop smaller than yours, but it doesn't mean I don't get half the table." Um, it's suddenly we're always sort of like just popping this thing up to go, must get through the emails, must be able to crank through this thing. So suddenly that displacement of activity has become something I now can't stop noticing. And it's that's an interesting one. And I think it's it there's probably some interesting cultural connections as well, because not infrequently being a Southern Rail victim myself, um, <laughs> Either you know coming in from Gatwick or or Thames Link coming in from from Luton or wherever it's going to be, and there's always that issue of people trying to put full size laptops and newspapers and notepads and everything else kind of on that table for you know fighting for space. But that's that's funny. That's not really something that happens on Dutch trains, for example, where where we spend a lot of our time. Um, you know, it's, it's rarer to see. Uh, laptops out. I mean, given they don't have the same table structures, but um, the the work patterns seem to to you know have some impact on the the activity in the train itself. I don't know, <laughs> but it, it's it, it it suggests in a way kind of trying to force fit um, an office way of working into um, a kind of fluid and mobile and increasingly geographically stretched um, uh, population. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like it's about the right to take up space. Like so many other things, it's about whether or not you are allowed to be in a space and whether or not you are allowed to take up space, whether or not you're allowed to be in that seat or in that bathroom or in that part of the restaurant or what have you. We've we've fought huge amounts of, there, there have been huge civil rights fights about the right to take up space, the right to inhabit a space. And one of the things that's like slightly disturbing about the, um, about the the sort of rapacious need to find those horizontal services surfaces to put your your laptop on is that your work somehow justifies that you're you're taking up that space that now that you've like sort of parked your laptop there you're doing something that's quote unquote important and therefore you have the right to that seat in a way that per- perhaps someone who isn't working might not even though we know that that's not true well this is yeah so this i think comes down to a lot of the tensions around um, you know, productivity and the the fact that flexible working or co-working or mobile working or whatever we want to call it has actually just kind of, and this is a metaphor I remember distinctly from the mythical episode that went disappearing, is the, you know, the spread of work like a fine layer of Nutella on everything. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the, the need to be able to, or, or the requirement to sort of spread productivity across all temporal surfaces and geographic surfaces. Um, such that we're expected to work all the time. Um, if you're, you know, a, a person who runs a business or an entrepreneur, or whatever you want to call it, or a, you know, a gig worker, etc., the need to be monetizing or financializing every second, um, and thereby be working, producing, making something, or or interacting in some way, which is a whole separate topic. 
of the difference between um, you know productivity and appearance of working um, uh, seems to kind of force that battle over or, or, or the need to kind of claim space and um, you know demand that you be allowed to to produce now that you've grabbed that PowerPoint or socket or or table space or whatever is going to be the human right to produce um, the yeah. It's, it's, and, it's the, and, and then depending on what sort of work structure you operate, so we are privileged in a way in, in that we control where we do things from a lot more than people who would be conventionally employed within um, a large corporation, office structure, whatever else, where you've got the technology that allows you to answer and do all work anytime, wherever you are, by occupying those spaces but still would like you to come into this other space in the city centre nine till five, five days a week. So suddenly you're going, wherever I am, I can be working, and therefore wherever I am, I'm kind of working um, if I'm stuck in that I structure. Th- I think it might be a, a good thing for, for listeners to sort of hear, uh, hear us roll a context check here, which is <laughs> to say, where is it that we work every day? as as compared to uh, yeah exactly but that's not the case for a lot of people you know where you work every day might changes depending on what airport you just rolled out of um but that's not true of a lot of workers um where i work every day is basically the same place every day it's it's in my apartment i i have an office i'm overseen by two little black cats they are my workmates but that's also not terribly usual um, or not terribly traditional. So explain the smithery style of work. Huh, right. John. Um, so the, so essentially, so we have a base at Makerversity in Somerset House, um, which mm-hmm. fun, funnily enough, one of London's first serviced office blocks in a way, that's where the Navy was based. That's where the mint was based. Um, there was a whole set of, um, in fact, I brought, I brought it up here just to sort of let to, uh, to list the sorts of things that were uh, listed there. Where was that thing? Uh, so you had the Navy, you had the Inland Revenue, the Registry of Births, Marriages and Deaths and so on. Suddenly all of these things were brought together in the 18th century. He says, oh, we should have all these people working on paperwork together and so on and so forth. So a large serviced office space. Now we work downstairs. We've got a desk and storage space, which is... Um, a premium in London when you think about sort of like just occupying a couple of desks and getting space because usually you get a pedestal rather than great big um, cupboards in which you can store stuff. Um, but that's not where we are all the time. So I will spend some time up there um, depending on what I've got to do in London. Or I will just sit at home. We've got a home office um, with a, a large ex-library reading desk Um on one side of the uh, desk, I've got all the computers and systems. On the other side, it's just basically blank cards and stationery and no technology at all. And there's no real, there's I couldn't I couldn't tell you a definitive rhythm rather than just sort of like saying, well, if I've got a call to do with Germany, I'll probably stay at home and do that because I can do that call in this space. If I've got a meeting to have in London, well, I'll go and sit up there, but um, work out of Somerset House for some of the rest of the time. It's the... It's constant surprise, I would think. So you have the freedom but, to choose where you go, though. Yeah, well, yes, I know. Arguably, um, my <laughs> in, in so much as my my uh, the the demands influence the space. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think that's exactly the same for us. I mean, we have an office, you know, we have an office that actually, like, like what you're describing, sits inside the shell, um, technically the shell of the former shell, the shell, shell petroleum. It sits inside the R&D building um, that was, you know, in use as a kind of horizontal research and development structure for 50 years that has now been broken up and turned into, you know, what just about every city has, which is, you know, office space is subdivided amongst different businesses, different creative endeavors. Um, there are, you know, individuals who are there with single desks. There are whole organizations that have occupied multiple rooms. Um, and, you know, interestingly, even some of that gets kind of bundled together thematically, uh, which is a whole other take on how you organize work and how you organize work culture. Um, is the idea of putting similar types of organizations together to get some kind of synergy or some kind of, you know, innovative cross whatever out of them is an interesting idea itself. Um, but yeah, like you, John, it's, it's I mean, for me, it's, or, or for us actually as a, as a group, it's dependent on the substance of the work material and the, the type of activity. Um, in some cases, we will move to other places entirely to get things done. If we're, you know, if we need large production space for physical, you know, layouts and work for, you know, media or, or objects or artifacts that goes in one place. Whereas, you know, a lot of times it comes down to the two partners sitting on, on a sofa and a chair, you know, with tablets in, in hand comparing notes and then we'll disappear to another continent somewhere. <laughs> and so there's a similar bridge there that which we, we could, if you start porting some of those kind of needs into, as if we were all working for the same company and go, oh, well, we need sort of, like, we need space to break out into to be able to do a particular thing with a particular material and so on. The the way that I find companies are, have been thinking about hot desking, um, flexible open plan etc over the last 10 years is notionally it should be better for that sort of thing of, of, of teams getting up and saying hey we need to do this thing now so what we need is a wall to build the service on blah 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 and um, we need a bit of space we need some cupboards etc so on the surface companies proclaim to be getting better at that sort of stuff in reality and i see this with a, a fair few of my clients what they tend to be doing is getting out of dodge because they're going sort of like, this can't be done in our existing corporate infrastructure. We're going to go and hire some WeWork space out back and do this mm -hmm. stuff there. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I would agree entirely. I see that happening more and more. Sorry, Madeline, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say that, you know, there's for a long time, I think a lot of businesses sort of followed the the Clayton Christensen, you know, innovators dilemma, innovator solution idea that what you needed to do in order to get people to have good, great ideas or world changing ideas was to sort of send them away. You would pack them away like like children off to boarding school so that they could go cause trouble somewhere else. And I think what we what we got out of that was that, oh, well, we send people away and not the idea that maybe we just send them to a quieter space where things aren't an, a big, noisy, open plan, that maybe it's not that they're in a different room. It's just that the room is quiet and dedicated to a single purpose. 
But there are few there are few dead spaces as dead as what I find in innovation hubs <laughs> around various organizations where people you know will go meet a, a company in particular and they'll say you know what uh, come and come and see our innovation hub and what you'll find is their previous kind of innovation artifacts gaining du- gathering dust um, very few people around and as you said John kind of people somewhere else you know everything it's, it's everything is happening in this kind of mythical somewhere else space. Um, and you know, 20 years ago, we saw commercials on TV advertising, you know, come and come and invest in this country. We have special taxation or come and invest in this country. We, you know, encourage education. And now it's come and invest in this country. We have innovation hubs. Um, and you know, you see this kind of Western model being, uh, you know, the, the spatial development of it being appropriated, lifted dropped into completely different contexts that don't have the the culture or the history or or the need or even the same kind of orientation or understanding around what innovation and productivity or whatever it's going to be is um and it becomes a kind of cargo culting um you know you 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 have the sort of development of these hub spaces where everyone tries to dress the Mm -hmm. look and you know look busy but i also see particularly outside of western contexts of you know a lot of discomfort and strange looks on people's faces as they try to figure out how to actually work in this place where suddenly the walls have come down. Yeah, it's a weirdly zoological prospect that if we just set up the right environment that that all of these ideas will produce in great number <laughs> and in great diversity, that that suddenly if we just get the right environment, the animals will feel okay about generating things. And, and it's you know, it's a natural idea. Like, I think it's a, it's a natural idea that if you change the environment, you might change the ideas. Um, but I think that sometimes the changes that we see in those, in those spaces aren't necessarily what, uh, what a creative person or what even a non-creative person or, or what anybody is really looking for, especially because when those, when those innovation hubs look so markedly different, they create this pressure, uh, to sort of, to, to create ideas that match the space, I guess, or to, to perform in a way that matches the space. Um, and I think it, it might cause more pressure than, than it actually relieves. So, so this is, this is one of the kind of key, key threads that I think we've talked about offline on this, which is the, you know, this, if the space is and the geography is shaping the kind of work culture, um, yeah, that does create these kinds of stresses and pressures. I mean, five, six years ago now, probably longer than that, I wrote a piece for Quartz at their launch called The Rise of the Computational Class that was, you know, kind of taking taking a, sw- a swing at, at understanding how technology-driven work was, you know, mapping or not mapping to geography uh, in the same way that, that Richard Florida had written about the creative mm. class, you know, a decade or more earlier. And now we see articles like, you know, we've got this list in front of us here, how the modern office is killing creativity, software is shaping workers' lives, um, the rise of the we working class, which I don't think is meant to be a compliment. It's we work and then we inherit. <laughs> Explain yourself. Well, I, I, when you you, uh, I, I have a thing against WeWork, generally speaking, because you go into this sort of like the, the front of house stuff with the, the fabled free, free beer tap is essentially filled with people who don't really seem that they have to work that hard or do much at all. Um, and then, because you suspect sort of like, there, there is no pressure on them sort of like coming up with yet another popcorn startup, because when it, when it all goes south, 
It, it, it's not something that they will have to worry about in the long term. So it's performative startupping. It's um, mm-hmm. it's it's like a really mundane Westworld where you go and sort of watch people go through <laughs> the the, the, um, the, the naughties. It's sort of like, oh, we can go back to Westworld naughties, and what we can do, we can hang around and have meetings about um, what the comms plan would be around this um, hard drive startup. Yeah, let's go and do that for a bit, and then we'll go, go back. It's a holiday that people can have. So basically, the Westworld prequel is yeah, office space. Basically, okay. yes. <laughs> That's the saddest idea I've heard today. I got more. Let's option it. Give it time. <laughs> but I, I mean, you're you're not wrong in the sense that that you know the 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 spaces also kind of come with this rule set that says you know failure is okay. You know, screw things up and restart. You know, don't uh, don't you don't have to work that hard, and yet. There's people probably have, have never worked harder in the sense of, you know, being under monitoring, being under sort of productivity pressure, having KPIs attached to everything. Um, you know, it seems like this kind of formula of or multi-sided issue of space, um, task or, or sort of requirement for productivity, and then also a lot of the enabling tools. I know we talked before about things like, you know, Slack. Um, which just the mention of it will make some people wince or have PTSD. Um, and yet another context for us, um, it's our office because yeah. we are distributed across three countries. Um, and sometimes, you know, given what day of the week it is, we could be spread across mm-hmm. even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the one place that's a kind of 24 hour open, uh, open space for work to happen asynchronously research to happen asynchronously, but also conversations that just kind of flow around those channels. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a really lovely third space in its own way. It, it inhabits that space between life and work. That's, that's, I think, one of the strengths of Slack is that it can be so many different things at the same time. And just, but for some people, it's, it has tentacles. The channels are basically strangling them. Yes. There's 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 a mix of metaphors in here, of so we find it. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We find it. um, We talk about this. When useful, we're talking about it. Sort of like, oh, it's it's a place, it's a space. So a Slack channel. The sort of as we were throwing notes together. So we just we'd a space in which we put all that stuff. Okay, so we're going to sort of like, all right, it's bound, it's fixed. We know that all that that stuff goes in there. So we are thinking of it in spatial terms. Yet when we start describing the problems with it, we flip to channels and messages, mm-hmm. comms and noise. So suddenly they sort of like, when useful, it's a place that you can park stuff. When unuseful, it's when everyone is in there shouting and you've got many of these things swamping the senses on top of each other. Um, I think the sort of like, there is something in this just because of the kind of like the the way that we're built right the way that we're evolved i'll put this stuff over there and i'll put that stuff over there we are learning still to use digital landscape in the same sort of sense so away from the slack stuff but into something i think we all use called appearing so it's the it's the friendliest um video calling service i know i think because it's basically they're all just called rooms and so you just send someone a link to room and then you just open it up in the browser and they're there there's no sign in. There's no chat. There's no, well, there is chat, but no one ever uses it. But it's just about sort of like you we walk are. into the room, pop your head, and go, "Hello, how you doing?" Yeah, and then you walk out again. Then it's done. But it is—it's back to the space metaphor rather than the channel metaphor. 
So now we have two clear categories of companies that might sponsor this podcast and companies that won't sponsor yeah. this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think so. Yes, you're right in the sense that we've moved away from the the you know 20 years ago was defined by the office metaphor is replicated in in digital workspace. Then we kind of crept into this this constant communication thread that just doesn't stop, which also kind of maps to the expectation that productivity doesn't end. Um, or that, that yeah, that where even a small organization is going to going to work like a global one, and and you know, what are the what are the next platforms look like? And I think that's one of the things I'm kind of interested in thinking about. There's this lovely piece in the New Yorker about two weeks ago called "The Software That Shapes Workers' Lives" by Marian Posner, and it talks about in this case she's actually using something as is you know um, an older application like SAP, but the way that it manages supply chains actually controls the shape of the workers' lives at each point in that supply chain in the same way that, you know, email inboxes seem to torment so many people. Fortunately, we don't seem to have that problem, but that's because we managed to keep the volume low, you know, the, the, the noise low and the signal high in that mix. Well, there's also, a, there are also problems of scale here. Like there are, there are you know, Changes is small, it's tight, it's nimble. Um, another larger organization that was working in 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 a in a massive Slack channel that was the equivalent of like, you know, a, a house of pancakes on a Sunday morning, would <laughs> would be noisier and less intimate and less creative. I would say. I think the people who complain a lot about Slack and the people who complain a, a lot about um, multiple other types of software, whether it's your, your email software or um, a task management software, or what have you, even, they are often with dealing WhatsApp. with yeah. huge amounts of people, huge yeah. amounts of people. And that's where I think whether it's a physical space, whether it's a big open plan office or even just a huge campus or whether it's a, a digital space, that's where you run into problems is the, is when it's a cacophony. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that you've already kind of pointed to is this kind of unbundling, uh, whether you knew mm-hmm. it or not. Um, and that's, that's, I think, effectively how, you know, the three of us as kind of individuals and as collaborators and kind of coworkers in a way, because we do, we do mix across these two different organizations um, and do projects together. The, so much of what we're relying on is kind of things out there in external space. Um, the, the not, not things that are, are, are presented or paid for or otherwise produced by an organization in ta- inside office space, quote unquote. Um, but we're, we are required almost to be good at adapting any surface in the city or any surface in the kind of transit tunnel, metaphorically, as being a workspace. Um, I think, John, it was you that, that you know, used the... the um, the Jason Bourne metaphor, huh. right? Yeah, <laughs> it was the which I think is a lie. First got, um, I think it was uh, Russell Davis talked about this first about sort of, um, and he talked about the the first Bourne film in particular about the sort of is almost being the perfect movie for the age when it was released because essentially most of it is just commuting across Europe um, and, and, yes. and gazing. Yes. Out of windows, waiting for things to happen, and that I think speaks to a lot of people who started work in the early noughties and sort of travelled around Europe, just waiting for things to happen and so on. Um, 
But you get to know the places so well that you can make use of them regardless of the conditions. Well, that's it. You develop a very, very particular set of skills, the sort of like, which is the... Honed over a long exactly. career. Exactly. It's the... I mean, the, the, to, pa to paraphrase, we were, <laughs> I can tell you the Wi-Fi password of all six available networks here. I can tell you the CMO is... All right. For those not familiar with this banter, let me, let me stop and we'll play the clip and come back. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? All right, so you're 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 on it, John. That this is the uh, you know the why do I know these things? I know where the powerpoints are. I know where the plugs are. I know where the what the Wi-Fi passwords yeah. are, etc. And that's that's the kind of modern skill set. Um, that makes me wonder if we would if 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 without Jason Bourne, would we fetishize everyday carry? What do you mean? Well, I think there's a there's a culture that sort of like that sort of fetishizes the the readiness of being able to work anywhere and that becomes a sort of um prospect for obtaining a lot of really cool accessories whether it's your shoes or your bag or even you know obviously your computer and your phone and whatever but there are other things like which multi-tool do you carry around which camera do you carry around which um which notebook do you have? Is it a moleskin or is it something else? Is it, you know, is, is it made by the, as they say in Fight Club, the hardworking indigenous people of wherever? You know, the, I think that there's a fetishization of the objects, um, which maybe also kind of ties into the cargo culting. The idea that in order to be productive, you have to have these, these right tools. But if you're a nomad, you have to have a different set of tools. And I think the the idea that J that Jason Bourne-like, you can turn anything into a lethal working object uh, has sort of <laughs> permeated. I think that these two things sort of work together in, in a certain way that that um, that is really interesting. Yeah, so I, I, as a person I, who doesn't is, carry around a lot. It's it, it's become the sort of, and, and rather than being sort of, I can turn it into a lethal object, it's good. I can turn this place into, into a little bit of office space just for half an hour, just to get these 17 emails done. Um, and it's the sort of like I know I know how to assemble these things so that basically I'm replicating the virus of the office back home into the sort of like whichever space I tend to occupy myself just to I mean it it Go on. It it is true. I've seen um uh there's a local designer here who she t she introduced me to the practice of just carrying post-its everywhere. That you should always have a bag and in the tiny little pencil case bag, there should be pen there should be sharpies and post-its, no matter where you are. And Q and she just sort of li lived that way. Cue a plug for the artifact card wallet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the, exactly. But but likewise, it's sort of like the I I have a bag for uh, the artifact field kit, the wallet. I've got the the cards in my bag. Basically, on the smallest table, you can just get out, lay out however many blank playing cards you need, sketch very quickly. And then just pack it all away in the box again, and off you go again. It's the, but we're always grabbing these moments. Whereas, I don't know. Is it is it true that thirty years ago, people would have sort of like a week to work on the things that they would have a day to work on now, and just 
didn't do that because they didn't have to. I don't. Well, whenever you see, whenever you see the, you know, like especially look at, at films from the '60s and '70s or TV mm. shows, even you know, for those of us who grew up in North America, the Brady Bunch, you know, if they ever got into the father's office, he's an architect, and he was forever sketching away on the same building for probably six years. Um, you know that that's what that's what um, Rob Brady did, right? He he sat in his office and like sharpened his pencils and then you know dispensed. Um, you know, kind words for his children and stepchildren and went back to drawing that same damn building. Um, but that's not what we get to do. John, I mean, you and I have co-taught this course in Barcelona at IED where, you know, the, the artifact card wallet and the cards are given to the students for a purpose to allow them to think on, the, on their feet, literally. Yeah. I mean, that- and, recombine, and to, to, to collect that and to recombine that material in ways that having a folio or a laptop would make really much more difficult. So there's, there's two things that I mean, it is almost like a course we could run on the streets. And one day when they find out what we're doing in the class, they might make us do that. Um, but the, <laughs> but it, so that's one half of it. But we are, it's about teaching people skills to go sort of like you will be wherever you go asked to come up with a lot of stuff in not a lot of time so what are the best ways that we can give you both in tools and methods to be able to quickly assemble and reassemble and reassemble and reassess different potential futures in which you might have to operate the i think that plus the architect point is pushing us into this i mean the the most macro scale issue is perhaps the sort of like constant economic growth and productivity of gdp so like we must be making more stuff because otherwise we failed that only lasts for so long right right and you know even even to you know the point of how we've kind of restructured the process you know the, the the foresight process or the foresight futures design process that we use and that we teach in courses to you know to our clients or whomever is very much designed around the need to be able to solve or break down not solve but break down complex problems into understandable landscapes on a tabletop you know th- 20 years ago this used to or 30 years ago this was literally processes they were social technologies you know, to quote the the sort of originator, social technology is designed to kind of bring large groups of people together and to use lengthy discussion and debate to both surface and then resolve uncertainty. And that meant a boardroom or a, a conference hall or a symposium, you know, sort of theater. And you had time, a lot of people and you know, a limited number of voices talking. Now you actually need to grab three people, go sit in the corner and break down that same complex problem of something like energy transition or the future of mobility or the future of, you know, sexual health or the future of, of education in a shorter period of time and come up with a point of view, but not necessarily a, a solve for that sticky problem. Um, so we're constantly forced to, to tackle bigger and bigger problems in motion with smaller groups of people in tighter spaces. And you hear of um, you hear of companies who develop their own hacks around this stuff. And it reminds me of, I, I met my friend last week who has, uh, he worked at Amazon for about five, six years and was fairly senior in the UK. But he talked about the, the document and meeting culture. So essentially, Bezos has forced on the organization the idea, sort of like, okay, if we're going to decide about something, we will get in a room and there will be a 3,000 word document with data as appendices mm-hmm. 
and that will be the decision time. We're not going to sort of like, we're not going to sit for endless meeting upon meeting upon meeting going through decks of PowerPoint. There is no PowerPoint. You do whatever it takes to make the document that will either let us say yes or no. And then they spend the first half hour of that meeting reading it in silence, silence. so that people can't go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read that, and then just start opining as no. We're all going to read this now to make sure we've all read it, and then the questions will begin. And then after that meeting, if it's going ahead, it's going ahead. If it's not going ahead, we are never going to talk about it again. As someone who is who who did a classics program at a at a Jesuit university, I got really excited when I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh wow, <laughs> there's reading, and then they and then you talk about the reading after. So it's basically a seminar. It's not a meeting. Amazing." It's the it, it sounds. I mean, the rest of the working at Amazon experience sounds like you know. It, it, well, it's that's, all, it's I mean, that's the Amazon job where you get to sit down. It's all, it's, all, it's all basically sort of like Amazon maybe just isn't that impressive a company. It's just like they don't fall into the trap of doing all the other shit that Microsoft infested everyone else with. Maybe. But it's, it seems to be it's about driving, you know, driving decisions in a couple of a couple of different mm -hmm. linear ways. You know, you're either sort of going forward or you're... Or you're not going forward and in some cases what is it the type one yeah. and type two decisions right one you can go back on the other one you can't mm -hmm. um but you know i'm just in in you know thinking about what we kind of want to get to in the last few minutes of this discussion you know we've been talking about how you know kind of moving out of offices and that the work and the tools kind of flow into other containers and those containers right now may be work surfaces on a train that is either going or not going somewhere depending on which company you're using um that that might be you know in a hotel i mean we were just all together in you know in a hotel um a, that's meant to be designed like a modern-ish co-working space slash hotel in dubai that even had a company that sort of offered co-working inside that hotel space didn't own the space or control the space but they could sublet the space for you as a member so now we're kind of having people spread across, you know, third spaces that aren't work designated. But then we have things like self-driving cars. Like we've heard, you know, one of the things that will happen when you have self-driving cars is that people will use the commute for work, which sounds horrible. Or people, um, or people will just hire or, a self-driving yeah. car to drive around for eight hours in a city and work in a car. Cosmopolis. Cosmopolis. That's the entire premise of that novel. Well, there you go. You know, yeah, John, I think you're right. This is, this is, you know, that will be the quiet space you go to. Let's go, you know, do some figure eights around this particular neighborhood. Or, you know, you see new models of purpose design public transit, right? The self-driving bus that also kind of has work desks in it. Or, again, this is for a certain privileged class of workers. Um, you know, I mentioned this kind of overlays or, or, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but parasitic kind of use of other other people's space. Um, but then there's also things like disconnected space. You know, we, um, I've talked to some, you know, friends in Nordic companies that talk about just going out into the forest and being completely, completely disconnected or, you know, working nowhere, just not working at all with a, you know, replacement of jobs. I don't know. There, there seem to be a lot of different shapes for this that pushes us less and less into the kind of factory building that everyone has to be together and more and more into, you know, the kind of walking dead, the perpetual. 
the perpetual, uh, you know, never stopping, always, always working. So we're, a, so we're away um, then. So to bring, to bring it back to something from the beginning of the conversation. So rather than having the fight for the horizontal space, they're always sort of like needing to put the devices on so you can output, output, output. Um, one useful thing was sort of like, how do you develop new ways that you can just soak up in the right sort of information that's not screen based, that's not keyboard based, that's maybe audio based or sort of like just visually based, whatever it happens to be, but you're sort of like, it gives you the time to consume that stuff as you as if you are walking through a Norwegian forest or on the South Downs or wherever it happens to be. You're still working, but you're not just trying to output, you're trying to just soak in some stuff and stew it down. Well, I think that the most important workspace that you can ever possess is between your ears, right? The first workspace is, is in your head. And I think that the, the intrusions that I think a lot of people resent about whether it's Slack or Trello or whatever, or whether it's about, you know, because before this it was about phone calls and before that it was about something else, um, or whether it's the intrusion of, of being reachable on the train or being reachable wherever you are, or even, you know, work following you into your hotel, into a place of rest. The, the, the intrusion I think that a lot of people resent or find themselves reacting to possibly without even knowing it is the intrusion into the mind, the intrusion into your head of, of that work rather than the work happening there, rather than you ruminating or thinking or meditating on or considering something. You know, what's useful about a, a book or a memo that you read is that it is shared between you and, and the memo. It's you and the written word, you and the idea. You are alone with it. And we are not alone very often anymore. It's very rare, even though we might be isolated in different offices or at different hot, hot desks. The idea that you might actually be truly alone is, you know, really, really rare. Um, the the thing that is the thing that people love about Slack and also despise about it is not that you know you are that it isolates people. It's that it creates a kind of telepathy where you are no longer al alone in your own head. Your thoughts exist in simultaneity with everyone else. And you, that's, you know, that's the, when we talk about the loss of privacy, there's, it's not just the loss of data privacy or the loss of identity there. It's the loss of the privacy of your own mind. And that's, that's well, and, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, there's an interesting thing in there of, so people are sort of liken the kind of like the mobile phone to the replacement of the cigarette. You're never alone alone with a cigarette. <laughs> but the whole principle of mobile phone is sort of like it's it's so different from the cigarette in that respect. It's sort of like you could sit at a bar and just smoke, and that would be fine, and you could just sit there for days, mm -hmm. um, and you would be with yourself and doing it. But it would give you the justification. The phone is not that. It's palpably not that. It's you and the rest of the world. A click away. Yeah, and I think about, you know, we're certain kinds of people who do certain kinds of work and that, that has a, a particular probably kind of cognitive, you know, neural profile to it. And um, and that's not always in, you know, intake mode and it's not always output mode. And, you know, one of the one of the privileges of doing this kind of work for, you know, I think for some of us has been the, the ability to find the contours and the sort of time day parts that work best to do those things and to try mm -hmm. to wrap those somehow around 
you know, deconstructed modern living of helping your neighbor or minding the children or, you know, trying to spend meaningful time with your family or, you know, catching up with a friend and being able to kind of slice and intersperse all of these things together. Um, I mean, our, I don't even think anymore about the difference between our office and our home, but not in a bad way. It's more than a case of, there's always a piece of glass somewhere that I can, you know, pick up and think about something or read something or find something. And, uh, but that's unusual, you know, more, much more of the, the fixed labor world is moving towards, as you said, Madeline, this kind of like colonization of the mind, um, that you can measure with, um, you know, skin, skin galvanance, right. That you mm-hmm. can use, you can eye use tracking. wearables to know when, or keystroke or yeah, mm-hmm. eye tracking, keystroke, motion detection, um, gate analysis, you know, is this person walking somewhere with their phone? Does that mean that they're moving from desk to desk or office to office? Um, you know, uses the technology to find out whether people are actually standing around together enough, which is the worst kind of, you know, forced Montessori uh, employment model. Yeah, back to the um, zoological discussion, <laughs> right? It is, you know, are the rabbits gathering together enough? You know, is the rabbit right. around working? Um, the, fu- the future of sexual <laughs> harassment for- suits after after all that body tracking is going to be really interesting. Well, that's yeah, but that also, maybe is another episode. But also, just to <laughs> um, talk, whenever you put systems like that into workplaces, whatever they happen to be, people will either. I mean, there was that example of uh, so they put the desk trackers into the. I believe it was the Daily Telegraph in the UK. Um, and it wasn't explained very well, like why they were doing this, because it was about sort of like, how how many of our desks are we using? Should we get more desks? Should we get less desks? Should we change more of it up to hot hot desking? But it wasn't explained to people, so they just knew that sort of like space occupancy was being tracked. Two things happen: one, people just broke them, so they just broke the sensors um, on the hot desk. Like, oh, oh, that happened again. Oh, I don't know how that broke. And then the second thing people do is they work out how to game it, and they work out if you put a rucksack on the chair and push it up against the sensor, it would register you as present. So people would do that with their own bags and then find other things they could do that with as well. Well, I, I, so on, on, a, on a kind of final note, I mean, we're, it's easy to sort of slip into dystopia here because we're talking about work and, and um, you know, I think there's at least a lot of, a lot more arguments being surfaced around how we can structure work and the future of working not so much work, but the future of working and the nature of it in more humane ways. But are there are there positive elements to it that you can imagine, <laughs> or is that a stretch too far at six uh, thirty p.m. on a on a Tuesday night? I th- I think there are. Um, when it comes from, so I get the sense that so like the way that so as we described, we're privileged to work in this way, but we find a sense of individual and common identity in doing it that way. I think if companies can work out how to let people discover that for themselves, but still within um, the body corporates, I think that then becomes interesting because actually the the perks and benefits start becoming about, I can fashion who I am as an individual. Back to the bone quote, how can I know all that and not know who I am? Well, maybe this is a way to start knowing who you are if you can... F- fashion your own the stuff you work on the space you do it the people you do it with more freely than just it or hr telling you the new bounds for engagement 
So companies should stop trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> <laughs> I meet your quote with another Zing. quote. Madeline? Um, I, I, I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who asked me, you know, if you like doing this foresight workshopping, if you like workshop facilitation so much, why don't you do it all the time? Why don't you work at a, <laughs> at a big design agency? Why don't you work, you know, why don't you show up for work every day at the same place or work full time at this job instead of, you know, being a novelist, being a, being a workshop facilitator, being a science fiction prototype or being a, you know, a adjunct lecturer, all the different piecemeal jobs that I do. Um, why is it that, you know, if you love this so much, why don't you marry it essentially? And, and, uh, and I said, well, I've, I've a never had a job like that and B then I would have to be on all the time. You know, I would have to be performing my labor in a different way. Um, one of the virtues of the way that I live is that I don't have to worry about, you know, like how I look at home or how I, you know, which, you know, where I go to lunch with what people or what have you. Um, those things take a huge amount of mental load away from me that enables me to do other things. Um, I think if I were called to work every day in, in, um, in the same place every day, I think if we all work together in the same place every day, uh, it, it's possible that some of the novelty might wear off. Um, but, we, you know, never. We, never, never. We would just be more like we would just get more entangled. The, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's possible. Um, but I think also that, you know, when we call on people to do, to do that every day, but we, but we ask them to do it in increasingly unstable environments, that's not terribly healthy. I think that the, the message that you send people, and this might be intentional, when you tell them to hot desk or when you tell them that, that they won't have a permanent space, is that they are not permanent within an organization, that their mm -hmm. position is not secure, that there is no stable home base for them to return to even if they even if they work a lot out outside of the office you know i fly around you and you fly around and john flies around we go everywhere you know we we are just as likely to get work done in an airport pret than anywhere else um uh but i feel seen yes we'll see yes see i'm validating you right now um <laughs> but uh but but even so, we have a place that we go back to. There is a place where Changes lives. There's a place where I live. There's a place where, where John lives. There's, there's Smithery. The, there is a place to return to. And I think that increasingly that's not the case, even for people who have a quote-unquote stable mm -hmm. job or a stable quote-unquote position, that even at the level of the, of the space, even at the level of the square footage that is your desk, it might not it might not be there. You might not be able to return to it. And there's a definite message that gets So there's something really interesting in that, cause you, um, especially from the point of view of uh, the novelist needing novelty, right? Um, it's the... <laughs> yes. But it's, but it's true. I've, I've, funnily enough, I just started reading a book called The Runaway Species um, by, he says, reading it off the spine, Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman. So I'm on like, a chapter in. But they talk about the, the need... For a balance between novelty and familiarity, um, that sort of like we th mm -hmm. we thrive when we have sort of like the right levels of both, etc. The stuff that we expect and like, and then there's new things that come along and so on. I, from a top-down perspective, you are managing a company. I can imagine how you perceive 
hot desking as a brilliant thing to introduce just the right level of novelty for people. Um, but from a bottom-up perspective, I totally get why that becomes the grinding familiarity of novelty. It's like, oh, I'm going to get into the office again and spend my first half hour wandering around and then find out I'm going to have to sit next to the same people who've decided to squat in the same places and so on and so forth. So it's, in in theory, it sounds great. In practice, I suspect it's sort of like it's failing on all counts. Yeah, this is this has come up numerous times in recent months for us in discussions of, you know, the 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 kind of workshop generation. You know that you've we've if you're if you're a corporate millennial, you've you know, and in some cases more intense than another. You're you're um, you've spent a certain percentage of your life now in workshops, and a certain percentage, a very large percentage of those, is going to involve some you know, fragment of design thinking methodologies or, or otherwise kind of ideating on the wall, you know, in a vertical space. And it's, it's kind of created an immunity to, to real novelty. Um, we were working recently with a group that someone had told us basically, you know, does a dozen workshops a year, sort of trainings that they're sent to, and in which case, you know, you start to learn how to behave in a training and you, you get bored because you think you can expect what's coming next. And it, that becomes rote labor, you know, even the sort of the attempt to mix up their lives and do something different and allow people to speak hmm. becomes formatted. Um, and so I think this idea of, you know, maybe if we're if we're really smart and lucky, we might find ways to um, let go and just sort of disentangle and dismantle <laughs> the the structures of work and working as as much as we can and allow people to find both the capabilities and the the you know the, the topics of interest but also yeah where they can give their best um and that's not always going to be on the same time cycle either um you know i know at least two of us would probably work late at night and not at all during the day <laughs> that has nothing at all to do with the fact that we're undead nothing, nothing. no no we're, um, we're just this but, pale naturally exactly <laughs> Um, but having said all of that, um, it is late in the day and it's also late in the program. So I'm going to wrap this up here. I think this has been a, a rich discussion that could go on a while. Um, but I appreciate you both taking the time. John, thanks Thank for you joining for us. Um, and Madeline, good as always to speak with you. And uh, hold on to the end of this episode for more information about artifact cards, if you will. And um, you will find us online. We will be on anchor.fm for the home base of this podcast, uh, but also on a podcasting platform near you and also at underfutures, all one word, on Twitter. Um, so thanks for being patient with us posting this episode late this month and um, speak to us about themes to discuss in the future. So Take care, everyone. Bye. This has been another episode of Under Futures. Thanks to our guest this week, John Wilshire of Smithery and Artifact Cards, for joining us. John's offering listeners a 15% discount on any purchase from artifactshop.com through April 30th. That's A-R-T-E-F-A-C-T shop.com. Use code HUMANSINTHEROOM, all one word, when you check out. You can follow us on Twitter at UnderFutures or on your favorite podcast platform. For Madeline Ashby, I'm Scott Smith. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.